Author John Graves continues his theme of critters found on and around his small ranch in the upper Brazos River country of Texas, but this episode is really more of a love letter to his favorite dog named Blue. He even bestowed the title of Nice Dog on Blue, using the term Nice Dog as proper nouns, capitalizing both words. Just a note of caution to those of you who are dog lovers, some parts of this story may be hard to hear. This is Chapter 11 in From a Limestone Ledge, entitled Blue and Some Other Dogs. One cool, still night last March, when the bitterest winter in decades was starting to slack its grip and the first few Chuck Will's widows were whistling tentative claims to nest territories, the best dog I ever owned simply disappeared. Dogs do disappear, of course, but not usually dogs like Blue or under conditions like ours here in the Cedar Hills. A crossbred sheepdog, he had spent his whole ten years of life on two north country places and had not left the vicinity of the house at either one of them without human company since the age of two or less, when his mother was still alive, and we also had an aging and lame and anarchic dachshund who liked to tempt the two of them out roaming after armadillos and feral cats and raccoons and other varmints. This usually happened at night, when we had neglected to bring in the dachshund to the house, or he had tricked his way outside by faking a call of nature or pushing open an unlatched screen door. The dachshund named Waddy had a very good nose, and the two sheepdogs didn't. And having located quarry for them, he would scream loud, psychophantic applause as they pursued it and attacked, sometimes mustering the courage to run in and bite an exposed hind leg while the deadly mother and son kept the front part occupied. It was fairly gory at times, and I'm not all that much at war with varmints, except periodically with individual specimens that have developed a taste for chickens or kid goats or garden corn. In fact, I rather like having them around. But the main problem was the roaming itself, which sometimes took the dogs a mile or so from home and onto other property. In the country, wandering dogs are an abomination, usually in time, shifting their attention from wild prey to poultry and sheep and goats and calves, and nearly always dying sooner or later from a rifle bullet or buckshot or poison bait, well enough deserved. Few people have lived functionally on the land without having to worry sooner or later about such raiders, and the experience makes them jumpy about their own dog's habits. Thus, they find much irony in city visitors' standard observations that country dogs are very lucky to have so much space for roving and playing. To cope, you can chain or pen your dogs when they aren't with you, or you can teach them to stay at home. While I favor the latter approach, with three dogs on hand and one of them a perverse and uncontrollable old house pet, too entwined with my own past and with the family to get rid of, it was often hard to make training stick. Least it was until the dachshund perished under the wheels of a pickup truck, his presence beneath it unsuspected by the driver, and his cranky senile arrogance too great to let him scuttle out of the way when the engine started. Blue's mother was a brindle and white Basque sheepdog from Idaho, of a breed said to be called Panish, although you can't prove that by me, since I've never seen another specimen. Taut and compact and aggressive, she was quick to learn, 
but also quick to spot ways to nudge rules aside or to get out of the work she didn't save her. She came to us mature and a bit over-disciplined, and if you tried to teach her a task too roughly, she would refuse permanently to have anything to do with it. I ruined her for cow work by whipping her for running a heifer through a net fence for the hell of it, and ever afterward, if I started dealing with cattle when she was with me, she would go to heel or disappear. Once, while chousing a neighbor's Herefords out of an oat patch toward the spate-ripped fence water gap through which they had invaded it, I looked around for Pan and glimpsed her peeking at me slyly from a shin-oak thicket just beyond the field's fringe, hiding there till the risk of being called on for help was past. Not that she feared cows or anything else that walked or crawled or flew or swam or, for that matter, rolled on wheels. She attacked strange dogs like a male and had a contemptuous hatred of snakes that made her go straight in to grab them and shake them dead even after she had been bitten twice by rattlers, once badly. After such a bout, I've seen her with drops of amber venom rolling down her shoulder where the fangs had struck the thick, fine hair but had failed to reach her skin. Occasionally she bit people too, always men, though she was nervous enough around unfamiliar children that we never really trusted her alone with them. Women, for her own secret reasons, she liked more or less indiscriminately. She was a sort of loaded weapon, Pan, and in town there would have been no sense in keeping such a dog around, except maybe to patrol fence grounds at night. But we were living then on a leased place just beyond the western honky-tonk fringe of Fort Worth, where drunken irrationals roved the byways after midnight, and I was often away. There, what might have otherwise been her worst traits were reassuring. She worshipped my wife and slept beside the bed when I was gone, and would, I am certain, have died in defense of the household with the same driven ferocity she showed in combat with wild things. A big boar coon nearly got her late one January night before she had Blue to help her out. The old oxen sicked her on it by the barn, where it had come for a bantam supper, and by the time I had waked to the noise and pulled on pants and located a flashlight, the fight had rolled down to the creek, and Pan's chopping yap had suddenly stilled, though Watty was still squalling hard. When I got there and shone the light on the commotion in the water, all that showed was the coon's solemn face in his shoulders. Astraddle Pan's neck with an ear clutched in each hand, he was quite competently holding her down despite her mightiest struggles. Big bubbles rolled up as I watched with Docks and Watty dancing yet uproarious beside me on good firm land. Grabbing up a stick, I waded into the frigid chest-deep pool, whacked the coon out of his saddle, declined his offer to climb me in retaliation, and sent him swimming somewhat groggily for the other bank. But by then, Pan was unconscious, and on shore I shook and pumped the better part of a gallon of water out of her before she started to wheeze and cough, which didn't keep her from tearing into the very next coon her brave small black friend sniffed out although I don't recall her ever following another one into water, she was not too rash to learn what impossibility was. We had a plague of feral house cats at that place, strayed outward from the city or dumped along the roadside by the kind of people who do that sort of thing, and a huge tom one time gave the dachshund his comeuppance. After a notable scrap with Pan, the tom decided to leave as I arrived, but she grabbed him by the tail as he went, 
At this point, old Waddy, thinking in dim light that the customary face-to-face encounter was still in progress and gaining from my arrival the courage the cat had lost, dashed in for a furtive chomp and was received in a loving, tight, clawed embrace with sharp teeth in its middle. His dismay was piercingly loud, and he bore those scars for life. The tomcat got away, wiser too, I suspect. If my less-than-objective interest in these violent matters is evident, I have the grace to be a bit ashamed of it, but not much. I have friends among the hound-dog men whose main pleasure in life lies in fomenting such pursuits and brawls, and some of them are very gentle people. In other words, I am not of the school that believes hunting per se makes worse brutes of men than they already are, or ever did, or ever will. Though I still hunt a little myself, I don't hunt in that way, and these home-ground uproars I seldom encouraged, except occasionally, much later, when Blue had become our only dog and had constituted himself our protector of garden and poultry. The toll of wildlife actually killed over the years was light, reaching a mild peak during the brief period after Blue was full-grown and before Pan died, when they hunted and fought as a skillful team. Most chases would end with a treeing, and I would go out and call the dogs home with no blood spilled on either side. But Man the Hunter's association with dogs is a very, very long-standing one, and anyone who can watch a slashing battle between his own dogs and something wild and tough, when it does occur, without feeling a flow of the old visceral reckless joy, is either quite skilled at suppressing his emotions, or more different from me than I think most men are. There being, of course, the additional, more primary and cogent fact that country varmints around the house and the barn and chicken yard are bad news, and the best help in keeping them away, if you dislike poison and traps and such things, is aggressive dogs. They can give you a bad turn on occasion, though, as Pan did one evening when she assailed something in a tight V-mesh fence corner, and hearing high, shrill yipes, I thought she was murdering a friend and neighbor's treasured tiny poodle, a wide wanderer named Pierre. I ran out and yanked her away, and out came not Pierre, but a quite rumpled little gray fox, who didn't give his name as he streaked off to safety. Unable to find any males of Pan's breed in this region, we mated her with one of the more numerous sheepdogs, similar in build and coat, but colored white and black speckled gray, known as Queensland Blue Heelers, or more commonly, just as Australians. Three of the resultant pups had her hue, and the fourth was blue, marked like his sire, but with less speckling and no trace of the blue glass or china tinge that many, perhaps most Australians, have in one eye or both. Sometimes there's only a queer pale blaze on an iris. When the time came to choose, we picked him to keep, and as a result he turned out to be a far different sort of grown dog than he would have if we had given him away. For Pan was an impossibly capricious, domineering mother, neurotic in her protectiveness, but punitive toward the pups to the point of drawing blood when they annoyed her, which was often. The others got out from under at six or eight weeks of age, but Blue had to stay and take it, and kept on until Pan died, run over too while nudging at the rule against chasing cars. 
even after he had reached full size at 75 pounds, half again bigger than either Pan or his sire, he had to be always on the watch for her unforeseeable snarling fits of displeasure. I used to wish he would round on her and whip her hard once and for all, but he never did. Instead, he developed the knack of turning clownish at a moment's notice, reverting to ingratiating puppy tricks to deflect the edge of her wrath. He would run around in senseless circles yapping, would roll on his back with his feet wiggling in the air, and above all would grin, twinkle his eyes and turn up the corners of his mouth and loll his tongue out over genially bared teeth. It was a travesty of all mashed-down human beings who have had to clown to survive. Like certain black barbershop shoeshine boys, some of them more than sixty years old, whom I remember from my youth. These antics worked well enough with Pan that they became a permanent part of the way Blue was, and he brought them to his relationship with people, mainly me, where they worked also. It was quite hard to stay angry at a large, strong dog, no matter what he had just done, who had his bobtail butt in the air, his head along his forelegs on the ground, and his eyes skewed sideways at you as he smiled a wide, mad, minstrel show smile. If I did manage to stay angry, despite all, he'd most often panic and flee to his hideout beneath the pickup's greasy differential, which may have been another effect of Pan's gentle motherliness, or may have just been Australian. They are sensitive dogs, easily cowed, and require light handling. For the most part, all that Blue did require was light handling, for he wanted immensely to please, and was the easiest dog to train in standard matters of behavior that I've ever had to deal with. Hating cats, for instance, he listened to one short lecture concerning a kitten just purchased by my small daughters for 25 cents at a church benefit sale, and not only let her alone thereafter, but became her staunchest friend, except perhaps in the matter of tomcats she might have favored, which he kept on chasing off. And he learned things like healing and two hours of casual coaching, which harks back to my description of him as the best dog I have ever owned. He was. But it is needful at this point to confess that that's not really saying much. Nearly all the dogs I owned before Blue and Pan and Waddy were pets that I had as a boy in Fort Worth, a succession of fox terriers and curs and whatnot that I babied, teased, cajoled, overfed, and generally spoiled in the anthropomorphic manner of kids everywhere. Most perished young, crushed by cars, and were mourned with tears, and replaced quite soon by others very much like them in undisciplined worthlessness. In those years I consumed with enthusiasm Jack London's dog books and other less sinewy stuff like the works of Albert Pace and Terhune with their tales of noble and useful canines. But somehow I was never vouchsafed the ownership of anything that faintly resembled Lad or Buck or White Fang. The best of the lot was a brown and white mongrel stray that showed up already old and gray-chopped, with beautiful manners and training, but he liked grown-ups better than children and stayed with my father when he could. The worst, but most beloved, was an oversized Scotty named Roderick Dew, or Roddy, who, when I was twelve or thirteen or so, used to accompany me and a friend on cumbersome hunting and camping expeditions in the Trinity West Fork bottom beyond the edge of town, our wilderness. 
He had huge negative willpower and when tired or hot would often sit down and refuse to move another inch. Hence, from more than one of those forays, I came hiking back out of the valley, burdened not only with a Confederate bedroll, a canteen, a twenty-two rifle, a bowie knife, an axe, a frying pan, and other such impediments, but with a thirty-five-pound dead weight of warm dog as well. The friend's dog, in contrast, was a quick, bright feist called Buckshot, destined to survive not only our childhood, but our college years, and the period when we were away at war and nearly a decade longer, dying ultimately, my friend swears, at the age of twenty-two. A canine wraith, nearly blind and grayed all over and shrunken, he would lie in corners and dream twitching of old possums and rabbits we had harried through the ferns and poison ivy, thumping his tail on the floor when human movement was near, if he chanced to be awake. With this background, even though I knew about useful dogs from having had uncles and friends who kept them for hunting, and from having seen good herd dogs at work during country work in adolescence, as well as from reading, I arrived at my adult years with a fairly intact, urban, middle-class, sentimental ideal of the nice dog. A clean-cut fellow who obeyed a few selected commands, was loyal and gentle with his masters, and refrain conscientiously from bad behavior as delineated by the same said masters. I had never had one and knew it, and the first dog I owned after years of unsettled existence was the dachshund Waddy, who was emphatically not one either. He started out all right, intelligent and affectionate and as willing to learn as dachshunds ever are, and with the nose he had made a fair retriever, albeit hard-mouthed with shot birds and inclined to mangle them a bit before reluctantly giving them up. He was fine company, too, a field or in a boat or a car, and we had some good times together, even collaborating on a book about a float trip we made down the Brazos River. But his temper started souring when I married and grew vile when children came, and the job was finished by a paralyzing back injury with a long, painful recovery never complete and by much sympathetic spoiling along the way. As an old, lame creature, a stage that lasted at least five years, he snarled, bit, disobeyed, stank more or less constantly, and from time to time broke wind to compound it, yowled and barked for his supper in the kitchen for two hours before feeding time, subverted the good sheepdog's training, and was in general the horrid, though small-scale, antithesis of a nice dog. And yet, in replication of my childhood self, I loved him, and I buried him wrapped in a feed sack beneath a flat piece of limestone with his name scratched deep upon it. While for Blue, than whom I will never have a nicer dog, even if perhaps one more useful, there's no marker at all because there's no grave on which to put one. I do think Waddy knocked out of me most of my residual kid sentimentality about dogs in general. He, along with living in the country where realism is forced on you by things like having to cope with goat-killing packs of sterling canines, and the experience of having sheepdogs with their strong thrust and potential never fully attained, to the point that I'm certain I will never put up with an unmanageable dog again. I remember one time of sharp realization during the second summer after we had bought the Cedar Hill place, 
long before we lived here any part of the year or even used it for grazing. That spring, after the dachshund had been thrown from the pickup seat when I jammed on the brakes in traffic, I had carried him partly paralyzed to the vet, a friend, who advised me, frankly, that the smart thing to do would be a lethal, painless shot of pentothal. But he added that he had always wanted to try to cure one of those tricky dachshund spines, and that if I'd go along with him, he'd charge me only his actual costs. Though by that time, Waddy was already grumpy and snappish and very little pleasure to have around, sentimentality, of course, triumphed over smart. The trouble was that with intensive therapy still going strong after several weeks, actual costs were mounting absurdly to the point that even now in far costlier times I can grunt when I think of them. Engaged that summer in some of the endless construction that's marked our ownership of the place, I was in and out every day or so with loads of lumber and cement and things, and paused sometimes to talk with a pleasant man who lived on the road I used. He had a heterogeneous troop of dogs around the yard, some useful, some just there, their ringleader a small white cur with pricked ears and red-rimmed eyes, who ran cars and was very noisy, but was prized by the man's children and had the redeeming trait of being, quote, hell at finding rattlesnakes. One morning as I drove in, the dog was sitting upright under a live oak fifty yards short of the house with his head oddly high and askew. He had found one snake too many. His eyes were nearly shut, and on the side of his neck was a lump about the size of his head. Nor did he acknowledge my passage with as much as a stifled yip, thinking perhaps they didn't know I stopped at the house. Yeah, said my friend, he run on to a big one up there by the tank yesterday evening. By the time I got there with a hoe, it done popped him good. Did you do anything for him? Well, we put some coal oil on it, he said. I was going to cut it open, but there's all those veins and things. You know, they say if a snake bites a dog in the body, he's a goner, but if it's in the head, he'll be all right. You reckon the next the head? I said, I hope so, and for days as I passed in and out, I watched the little dog under his oak tree from which he did not stir and checked with the family about him. They were not at all indifferent, he was a main focus of interest, and they kept fresh food and water by him. The neck swelled up still fatter and broke open, purging terrible fluids. After this happened, he seemed to feel better and even ate a little, but then one morning he was dead. Everyone, including me, was sad that he had lost his fight to live, and the children held a funeral for him with bouquets of wild prairie pinks. And such was my changing view that it seemed somehow to make more healthy sense than all that cash I was ramming into a spoiled, irascible dachshund's problematic cure. Good country dogs are something else, and often are treated like members of the family and worried over as much when sick. This is not sentimentality, but hard realism, because they're worth worrying over in pragmatic terms. There aren't very many of them. As good dogs always have, they come mainly from ruthless culling of promising litters and from close, careful training, and most belong to genuine stockmen with lots of herding work to do. These owners routinely turn down offers of a thousand or more dollars for them, if you believe the stories, as you may well after watching a pair of scroungy border collies in response to a low whistle or a word 
run a half mile up a brush-thick pasture and bring back 79 Angora weathers and pack them into a fence corner or a pen for shearing, doctoring, or loading onto a trailer, all while their master whittles a mesquite twig to a point and picks his teeth with it. Blue wasn't that kind of a dog, or anywhere near it, nor was there much chance to develop such talent on a place like ours, where resident cows and goats are fairly placid and few problems in handling them emerge that can't be solved with a little patience and a rattling bucket of feed. For that matter, I don't know nearly enough about the training of such dogs to have helped him get to be one, though a livestock buyer I know, who has superb dogs himself, and handles thousands of sheep and goats each year on their way from one owner to another, did tell me, after watching Blue try to help us one morning, that if I'd let him have him for six months, he might be able to make a dog out of him. I was grateful and thought it over, but in the end declined, partly because I mistrusted what six months of training by a stranger might do to that queer one-man nervous Australian streak in Blue, but mainly because I didn't know what I'd do with such a dog if I had him in those rather miniature and unstrenuous livestock operations. His skills would rust unused, and the fact I had to face was that I didn't deserve a dog like that. In this chapter of From a Limestone Ledge, John Graves is reminiscing about his favorite dog ever, a dog named Blue, and about Blue's sudden and heart-wrenching disappearance. Graves writes about the emptiness that comes after searching fruitlessly for a missing dog, as he put it, an emptiness that comes sooner or later to all people foolish enough to give an animal space in their lives. We'll hear more of that story next time here on The Bookshelf. Vern Windham is executive producer of The Bookshelf. I'm Tom Bacon.